morning again, and I'm so glad to see you all here. And just as you can see in the title, today I'll be taking a considerable risk preaching about lament on the Sunday before Christmas and right before a member meeting, no less. Yet it may be surprising for you to hear, depending on how you count, over one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. There are, in fact, more Psalms of lament than they are, there are of any other category. So over one-third of the Spirit-inspired songs we have are written from a sad frame of mind or with a heavy heart, carrying the flavor and purpose of faith-filled complaint to the Lord. So I'll ask for your patience and understanding as I strive to lead and teach on these matters in a biblically faithful way. These things, this spiritual discipline, I'm calling lament a spiritual discipline, uh, are in the Word of God for our good, for our joy as individuals and as a church. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. The Scriptures themselves are profitable. Not what we want to dress it up as and not what we would try to make it say or just our favorite parts. All of it is good for you as is. So as we approach Psalm 74, which is where we'll be, feel free to ignore anything I say that is not in line with the spirit of the text or the rest of Scripture. But before we dive into the text this morning, would you pray with me? Father, we confess that you are right always. Whatever you do, whatever you say, in whatever way you lead, in whatever way you choose to reveal yourself, you are always right. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Who is like you, O Lord? And we stand in awe of you because you are holy. You are perfect in every way. There is no flaw in you. And we have only become acquainted with the outskirts of your ways. Please guide us and help us this morning. Help us understand you. Help us understand why you have said these things that you have said. Help us see your heart. Help us see your Son. As we consider lament, maybe not a fun thing to think about, help us see it as a guide, a hope, and an encouragement. But also, Father, please help us not neglect the spiritual discipline. We are at your mercy. And if you would, where you are in your own heart and mind, pray for your own heart and for me and for us together that the Lord would work wonders in our midst today. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you send it to heal us. That is your end goal, and we want that this morning. I need your healing 
this morning. Please administer your surgical care to my heart through your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Psalm 74, you will find that on page eight, uh, 455, I believe it is, in your pew Bible. Either way, you should be able to find it somewhere around the middle. I want to start with verses 1 through 3. We'll do what we did in previous weeks. I'll read a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about it. And back and forth we will go. Psalm 74. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pastor? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. In verses 1 through 3, which set the agenda for the whole psalm, we see the nature of lament. So the three points that I'm going to give you underneath these three verses summarize a lot about lament and and the themes going on in the psalm, and then the comments about the rest of the psalm will be shorter. In these first three verses, we see three, at least three, characteristics of lament. Number one, we see that in lament, we are Godward, towards God. This helps set lament apart from something like grumbling. We want to be different than the children of Israel in the wilderness. Hopefully, you want to be different than them. Uh, We don't want to have the same kind of faithless grumbling that they had. Where's our bread? We had so many good things back in Egypt. It's horrible out here. It's hot. And the sun? Man, we had cucumbers back in Egypt. I don't get it, man. But we don't want to be like them. We don't want to just complain. Rather, we must be Godward in our lament. Complaining, faithlessness, just grumbling does not please the Lord. James warned against that kind of thing in the text we studied several weeks ago. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So when we're grumbling and when we are not towards God and He's not what matters most to us and we're just asking for our stuff in the complaint, that's not lament. Biblical lament is Godward in this sense. We are deeply bothered and saddened by the things that we know are not the way they ought to be. We are deeply bothered and saddened by things that are not the way the Lord designed them. We have to have this category or for several reasons, but one of them is we if we don't have that category, we'll be just really shoddy comforters. Jesus our wonderful, merciful high priest, as we heard about in our New Testament reading today from Hebrews 5, was able and willing to weep when Lazarus was in the ground. Death is an enemy. It is the most imposing billboard in the universe 
saying, something has gone horribly wrong. And Jesus is able to enter in and lament and be sorrowful about the things that are not as they ought to be. So when we encounter things that are not God's ideal, and when we experience something that reminds us things are not as they ought to be, we should lament. Not because they make us sad, but because God's design and His best are not happening. It is not God's best for His sanctuary and the temple of His people to be in perpetual ruins. It is not His best, it is not His ideal for His people to be harassed and depressed. It is not His ideal situation to have to discipline His people over and over severely. And look, you know that I love and I hope you love the beautiful comforting truth that God ordains and is sovereign over every single thing that happens. But if we think that that truth, that beautiful, wonderful, comforting truth, means that God just has a, yeah, this is fine, posture towards everything, we've taken a massive step back in our understanding of who God is. God is not fatalistic. In lament, we align our emotions then with just a shadow of the heart of God. Why else do you think it was that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Of course, he knew what needed to happen. Of course, he understood that God ordains and is sovereign over everything, yet a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The curse lies heavy on this world and in our own bodies. I know I'm only 34, but I feel that more and more. It's very hard to be empathetic towards anyone if you think the only thing we have to say is, well, whatever my God ordains is right. Of course that's true. That's not the full picture. Who else knew that more than the Lord Jesus? And yet, in the days of His flesh, He offered up prayers with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was delivered. He was answered. He was heard because of His reverence. The truth is this. Whatever my Lord ordains is right in the grand plan that He's working towards. And in the meantime, so much of it is sad and tragic and deeply sorrowful. So that's the first thing about lament. In it, we are Godward. We see how He feels, if I may speak that way, His heart towards the world, even as He is ordaining all these things. He's not happy about it the way that we might think He is. And so we align our heart with His and we grieve because it grieves Him. The second thing we see about lament is that we are allowed to be imprecise. This is so encouraging. And in fact, this, this message, I'll say this again, is not lament. This message is teaching about lament. And so my aim is to encourage you. We can be imprecise in our lament. When I was a stockbroker, I used to talk to 
many rich people. Um, and when you talk to the rich and powerful, there is a sense of needing to speak correctly and precisely. But one of the more encouraging and helpful things about lament is that if we have the right posture of heart, if we are Godward here, then it's okay if our words aren't quite purely accurate. Job's friends jumped in far too quickly to correct what they thought was an error in his theology. He was lamenting and they should have just listened. And if you're familiar with the Psalms, if you don't neglect those Psalms of lament, you'll come across statements that are not true at face value. But they are true about the mind and heart of the author. I had planned to give you five examples that are just blatant. I, for the sake of time, I'll just give you uh, one later on. But let's, let's look at these two questions he asked. Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger burn against us continually? So those are not true. Even a basic understanding of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants would defeat those statements on paper. And even digging further, going back to what we saw about prayers of confession and everything we said about God's discipline, we know that all of His chastisement that they've come under is only out of His love and His discipline and not out of His wrath and anger. But it feels and seems this way. That God is angry and that He is casting us off. The lament opens a window into the heart of a person more than any other type of prayer. Because we have the freedom to be very, very vulnerable to the Lord. And to ask the Lord all the questions that maybe you wouldn't even dare speak in public. It doesn't offend Him. Sadly, many of you may not understand if, if one of us were to intentionally practice the spiritual discipline of lament in our gatherings. Would we be one of the ones, would I be one of the ones to jump in and to try and teach the person and correct their thinking? You don't want to be like Job's friends. I'll give you this example I mentioned from Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That sounds like a dishonoring thing to say about God. But the psalmist is saying... The imagery is like, you, God, you're, you're behaving like a fair-weathered friend. You're, you're here when things are fine, and then when things go rough, I can't find you. That's crazy. But listen, is that not your experience sometimes? Or is this just me? I know it sounds <clears throat> more socially acceptable and like it's the right answer to say things like this. Like, oh, you know... There's a lot going on. I got a lot on my plate. Things are heavy. But, you know, the Lord's good. The Lord is faithful. I see His hand at work. Of course, it's right. But I think we say things like that to deflect. Maybe because we don't want people to respond to us like Job's friends did. 
I think we're so out of practice with lament. I am out of practice with lament. We don't understand that it is worship to say things like this. I don't know. Things are really hard and it feels like God has abandoned me in my trouble. It feels like there is no real reason that He's putting me through the ringer. And what makes it worse is I'm failing to find His face or a sense of His sweet fellowship in the midst of it. I know I should trust Him, but He has hidden His face from me for no reason. Will we, would we, let people say that? I think we would, but only if we agreed that the trial they were going through merited it. Unless we see that, unless we can relate to the problem, then when we hear things like this, especially from those that we think should have everything together, we think something is wrong, or we call it outright sin. How would you feel if I were to say something like that? Something similar to what the psalmist said in Psalm 10. God's hiding Himself in times of trouble. And the temptation is there. Don't you feel it? To come back and say something else. To put a happy bow on it. And of course, we must still be Godward. I've already said that. We are never allowed to give up hope in God. But man, we need a legitimate space for this imprecise complaint to God. And what's crazy is, it's not just the case in your private prayer closet. This is the whole context of all these psalms of lament is the assembly. They were singing these things together. They were stirring each other up to say these kinds of things to the Lord. Crazy. There need to be more good songs of lament. It would feel so out of bounds if I were to try and make sure that one-third of our songs that we sang together were intentionally from a sad or broken-hearted frame of mind. That would be the regulative principle, right? So you theology nerds. We're out of practice. One of the sad effects, and this, this is my pastoral heart in speaking on something like this, yes, even the Sunday before Christmas, one of the sad effects of not having a fitting or welcome place or expected place for lament is that believers feel that sorrow is the exact opposite of joy. And that's not true. And so, not having any proper or welcome place to express or to sit in godly sorrow I believe is a massive contributor to why depression is, is a pandemic in the church. You tell them to go away. That's not honoring to the Lord. If you were really honoring to Him, you would feel this way. And they don't have, they don't have anywhere else to go. So they go get medicated. This has been happening for hundreds of years. Since the Puritan era, pastors just essentially gave that whole real estate over to the professionals. We've stopped being surgeons of souls. Where can you go with all the groanings of the soul if you are told that they are not God's best? And if we are told that this kind of sorrow is antithetical to Christian joy, 
This is why I titled this sermon that, this way, praying out of the depths, right? It can be what we say when we're sitting in there crying out of it, where our voice goes out of the depths to the Lord, but it is also what we need to do to get out of it. And unless we have some space, some way to be this level of vulnerable with the Lord and know that He wants us to do that, we're going to be stuck there. And I say that from personal experience. The third thing we see about lament is this. Well, let me say this before I move to the third point. There is a way that all of this sorrow, all this anguish of heart becomes very problematic and why it becomes something sinful. And that's when we don't come to Him with it. You see? When, we're, when we have the idea that we've got to go clean it up and process it and preach to ourselves right before we approach the Lord, that's just like legalism. That's just like every other spiritual ailment we have. In essence, when we stop trusting Him with our sorrow and our anguish of soul, it all turns into something terrible. Thirdly, we hope in the Lord. In lament, we hope in the Lord. Before even getting to the main content of the lament itself, we see the psalmist calls upon the Lord for action. He says, remember, remember, direct your steps. Intervene, Lord. Listen, we have to come to that point. Here's one of my fears about prayer. We wait too long. You just end of the sentence there. We wait too long before we come to Him. We wait too long to bring our burdens of our hearts. We think we have to figure it out. We think about it. We process it. We theologize it. We preach to ourselves. And we... we, we run it through all the algorithms in our heart, and then we come to Him and pray with our best cleaned up thoughts. And when we do that, I think that's why so many of our prayers are tentative. Jesus did not approach the Father only saying, Your will be done. He prayed precisely for what He wanted out of the anguish sorrow and grief and lament of his soul, and then yielded in his heart to trust whatever the Lord would answer. So Lord, please intervene. Please remember your covenant. Please remember your promises. It feels, Lord, like you're forgetting them and forgetting us. Help us, Lord. Waiting to have the full picture or the right theology or perspective before we come to Him and bear our souls to Him is so, so proud. And it means you really never would if you waited for that. We don't know how to pray as we ought. It pictures waiting like that waiting to process it and think of all the perfect ways we need to pray and approach Him, pictures us as not being as needy and as desperate for the Lord as we really are. We don't even know how to feel about these things. So where do you go to address all of that? You have to go to Him. 
Again, I hope you understand the point of this message is encouragement. He's not offended or surprised or dishonored by us actually treating him like our father. This may sound odd to you that my aim is encouragement, given the subject, but again, this isn't lament. I'm teaching about lament and grasping hold of what God has for you. The massive, precious gift that lament is and the welcome that it indicates that God has for His children will encourage you if you take hold of it with faith. He's not offended. He's not upset. He's not disappointed or annoyed when we come to Him. He's not any of that when we say things like, Lord, why have You withdrawn Yourself? Why have You hidden Your face from me? Why have You not filled my heart with hope and joy in You? doesn't offend Him. brings delight. There may be more God-honoring faith and yes, even hope in such statements like such statements like that than 95% of the things you pray for. In prayers like that, we're, we're really talking. Right? You have relationships, all of us do, that, that are kind of always hanging around surface level and you never get down to the nitty gritty where you're really talking. And, and a lot of our prayers are just, are just that, surface level. You, yeah, I need this stuff. Help us, give us peace, whatever. And, and then it's done. With the lament, we go down to the basic level and it's like, okay, now we're really talking. Verse 4. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They are like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing, down, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. And now we see in these verses some of the reasons for lament. These, these are not all the reasons for lament. If I were to list them all, then the sermon would be a lament. But these are a few from the text. I'll just give you three. Of course, we can lament things like our own sin, our own lack of understanding, the suffering that we encounter, so many things that are personal. But these are actually much more broad and relate to the whole community. Fifteen of the lament psalms are communal laments. So here are the things that it laments. Number one, false worship. We see this especially in verse 4, setting up their signs for signs. God's foes have come in to the sanctuary and set up their own system of truth, their own teaching, their own value system. They've muscled out or pushed out the genuine worshipers of God, set up their own worship practices and preferences. And today, I would say there's probably more false worship in the church than there was back then, because at least back then it was concentrated all in one place. It's lamentable because false religion and idolatry are not just found in places like Buddhist temples, atheistic classrooms, godless political ideology, or cults. Rather, in so-called churches 
And all under the banner of biblical and godly, and even in the name of our Lord Jesus, those places can be the most prolific idol factories, promoting all forms of false worship. Just think of the letters to the seven churches. Right, so this is obviously true. False worship abounds. Think of the Corinthian correspondence. And of course, we can think of many things that we could do to address the problem of false worship, but the first thing we ought to do isn't really aimed at fixing it at all. It's just to lament it. We're supposed to be sorrowful about it and bring it to the Lord with faith-filled complaint. Look at all this false worship, God. This is awful. Why don't you do anything about this? That resonance of soul that happens in such a prayer is probably closer to the heart of God than most of our other prayers. In bringing that complaint to God, we're acknowledging that only He, and He knows it already, He knows, but we're acknowledging that only He can really ever do anything about it. We're at His mercy. The second thing that we ought to lament, more precise or specific than just false worship, is the poor state of the church. In verses 5 through 8, the genuine worshipers of God have been cast aside, the false worship has been set up, and they've burned all the meeting places of God throughout the land. So the genuine worshipers, those who would actually try to obey the Lord and worship Him rightly, they can't because they're afflicted and oppressed. The author looks at the long-lasting adverse effects of false worship. God's people can't gather and assemble and worship the Lord rightly. That's a terrible state. And it is so today. And I fear that one of the reasons we don't have this tenderness of heart that leads us to lament, one of the reasons we may not have this posture of mind in approaching the Lord in this godly, faith-filled complaint, is that we do not know, or we do not see, or we do not want to see how dire things are in the church. A lot of data I wanted to go through to give you, but again, I didn't want to make this awfully heavy. I'll just quote Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, in his book, Josiah's Reformation, Worth Its Weight in Gold. He put it much better than I could. He said, How may we preserve this tenderness of heart, that tenderness of heart we saw in Josiah? How can we preserve that tender heart? The way to preserve a tender heart is to go to the house of mourning and present before yourself, meaning bring it to your eyes, the pitiful estate of God's church abroad, and that we are at risk to be in such a state ourselves before long. The church here in our nation and abroad is in a dire, pitiful estate. We can put our heads in the sand and pretend everything is good, or we can become like the Pharisees and be thankful for what we have and say, thank you, Lord, that we're not like those churches. Or we could scramble around and try to fix it with any number of strategies or programs. Shortcut solutions. 
not remembering that the same type of rebellion and tickling ears is in us. Or we could begin the right way and lament. Make the faith-filled complaint to the Lord. The third thing that we're able to lament from this psalm, again, not an exhaustive list. This is just what I believe is exegetically valid from this psalm. The third thing that we're able to lament is the discipline of the Lord. That might be a bit of a surprise. But I think it would be silly to assume that the psalmist does not know that all of these things have only come upon the people because of their sin. It's only because of God's love. It's only because of His discipline. This psalm seems to have been written during the exile and all the godly would have known the only reason we're here in Babylon and God's sanctuary has been destroyed is because of our sin. God has been right this whole time. And yet, still laments. And that honors the Lord. He's only being faithful to His covenant in disciplining Him, but that does not mean we cannot lament. In fact, it is right to do so. It is worship and it pleases the Lord to come to Him with faith-filled complaint and sorrow even when we know even when we know that it is from His hand for our good. In fact, that's the whole context of the book of Lamentations. right? The, the book in the Bible that bears the name Lament is that very thing. Jeremiah was the prophet warning the people in a last futile attempt to bring them to repentance, and then he writes the Lament. So he knew it was all God's plan. He knew that this is what needed to happen, and yet it is still lamentable, and it is still worship to come to Him It might be counterintuitive, but if you just think about the discipline of your own children, you know that this is true. You know it is far better for them to lament the discipline that they know that they need than to take a stiff-necked, jaded, grin-and-bear-it posture to what you're doing to discipline them. You know that if they reach that point, you've got to go back to the drawing board and do something else because you don't have their heart. But when they plead for mercy, when they don't like what is happening and they come to you with faith-filled complaint, then it can be effective. And does that not show the tender mercies and character of our Lord? He is pleased when we come to Him even lamenting the discipline that He has designed for our sanctification. He's not disappointed. He's not bothered by it. He smiles when you come to Him like that. It is as if a willingness to bring oneself low and be broken and contrite in heart before Him and plead for mercy accelerates the usefulness and effectiveness of the discipline itself. How kind is our God. It is clear then in this psalm that the lamentation is asking God to stop or to soften the things that are only happening because of the people's sin. 
that humble plea for mercy is probably the most God-honoring prayer you can ever utter. That's what results in justification for the tax collector. Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's simultaneously an acknowledgement that whatever you do is right and I deserve it all, but please don't do that. Give me mercy. And he went down to his house justified and not the other. Verse 9. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. In verses 9-11, through we see the psalmist continue in the lament and he asks the Lord to act in specific ways. But I want us to see that in lament there is a heart of longing. Lament isn't just faith-filled complaint, and that's it. It is faith-filled complaint that, it, that arises out of a heart of longing for certain things. From these verses, we see the, the psalmist express longing, number one, for the words of God. In the previous section, we saw that God's foes have set up their own signs. Their signs for signs. Their own system of truth. Their own false worship. So, Error and the celebration of lies do bother the psalmist and they ought to bother us. But we see here that what might even bother him more, the flavor of this lament, is keener. And perhaps it, what, it is what ought to bother us more and bring us to our knees, crying out to the Lord in lamentation, and that is a famine of hearing the words of God. This is exactly what the Lord says through the prophet Amos. In chapter 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. How could that be in our day and age with such easy access to the words of God? How could we have this kind of famine in our land? But don't you see, it's not a famine of the Word of God itself. It is a famine of hearing. And this is exactly what the backdrop is to Paul's exhortation to Timothy when he tells him to preach the Word. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, a famine of hearing the Word of God. And listen, Paul is not looking at the world, you know, the woke Greeks and Romans and the Judaizers, and saying, oh, they're going to have a famine of hearing the Word. He's saying, in the church... Those who are faithful will come to a point where those itching ears cause them to experience a lack of hunger for the real Word of God. So this longing, the, the, the heart of longing in lament, sees this famine and says, oh, that we would have a restoration of hunger for the Word of God in the church of God. That's not grumbling like the children of Israel. That's not just flailing 
against your heavenly Father. That is seeing exactly the things that please Him and glorify Him and saying, why can't we have that? We need a restoration of hunger for the Word, an increased appetite and craving for hearing solid and biblical, faithful proclamation, exhortation, and yes, even rebuke. Also, secondly, we see in these verses the heart of longing and lament for the silencing of God's enemies. This should not be surprising when we consider how important words are to the Lord. Have you ever been drawn off sides if you take your soul into your own hands and go onto social media or you you see the comments that people make about anything spiritual and you see them say such terrible things about our God and such blasphemous things about the Lord Jesus and even without any thinking about ourselves or the effect of that comment on us we feel drawn to want to say something because this person that we love so much this person whose glory matters so much to us resonates with us and we see his reputation, his glory, his fame being diminished and and lies being spoken about. We want it to stop. That's how the psalmist feels about the Lord. Why should the lies and the falsehood and the false teachings go on and on and on? See, the worst thing the worst things about the words of the scoffers and the false teaching isn't necessarily the damage that false teaching has on people, but rather the damage it does to the reputation, the glory, and fame of our Lord in our midst. This should not go on. The reviler should not be able to go on and on and on. So in lament, we should want all of that to be corrected and set right. Lastly, from these verses in lament, we should long, number three, for recompense. Recompense. As uncomfortable as this is to us in our modern sensibilities, it is both fitting and righteous to long for the coming of the day. So that the Lord will finally destroy, just using the word from the text, Destroy the wicked. That's crazy. It's hard to say, it's hard to read, it's hard to preach. But it's right there. How are we to know if the one we worship and the one we embrace is the God who is there if we neglect these harder things? The psalmist is praying for God to destroy the wicked. What's fascinating about these verses when he says, take it, Referring to his hand, this is verse 11, take it, your hand, out of the fold of your garment and destroy them. It pictures God as idly standing in heaven with his hands in his pockets. Just sitting there, doing nothing to stop the oppression, the violence, the reviling, the false teaching. And this goes back to what we saw in the beginning. It's okay to be imprecise. We know that He works all things together for the good of those who love Him. We know He is holding off Judgment Day out of patience and mercy and for salvation. We know that His plans are perfect. We know that His Spirit is always at work restraining sin. 
and that it will all come to a perfect end at the last day. But, when we look around at the world, at the prosperity and success of the wicked, it can feel like God is just standing in heaven with His hands in His pockets doing nothing about it. Turn back to Psalm 73. That's probably my second favorite psalm. And it's that same limit. Why do the wicked prosper? And it's not just that the good do well and the righteous, that the evil do well and the righteous suffer. It's that the, the wicked get ahead because of their wickedness. And the righteous suffer because they're righteous. It feels capricious. Lord, why don't you do something about this? Bring on the day. It's astonishing. God in His kindness has given us this gift of lament. We are allowed, even welcome, to say things like that. In no uncertain terms, we can ask God to speed things up and come to the end of His patience, that He would hurry up and conclude His saving purposes and get on with bringing on the end of the world and the cataclysm of the wrath of the Lamb. And right there we understand what the Gospel is, that this is God's mercy holding off this day so that more could be saved. And if you're here and you have not been reconciled with the Lamb by His blood, do so today. Let today be the day of salvation for you because that day is coming. And only those who are in Christ will be able to stand and abide the day of His coming. We'll see some of this idea of the return of Christ next Lord's Day, Christmas Day. I promise that will be a more encouraging message. Hopefully this has been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. But one of the reasons in real time, and I understand this is a mysterious thing to say, one of the reasons in real time why the Lord has not come back yet is because His people are not yet calling out to Him, crying out to Him for Him to come. Not like this. Not with one voice. Sadly, I think things will have to get much worse before His people do so. But maybe not. Who knows what the Lord will do and how He will work in our hearts. Verses 12 through 17, we see the psalmist turn to consider the mighty works of God. Verse 12. Yet my God is king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food to the creatures of the wilderness. You split open the springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. I think we see from these verses that lament is worship. Lament is worship. If I haven't been able to convince you this far, maybe these verses could convince you. There is an inevitable effect of looking to the Lord. When we 
Do not depend on our own circumstances to bring us to the point of praising the Lord. We talked some about this last week. Praise is what we do if we find ourselves in the depths at the bottom of the mountain and not at the top of the mountain in our hearts. The psalmist comes to the Lord. He looks to Him even in his complaint. Even in the inaccurate and imprecise agonizing of his soul. And yet, as the eyes of his heart are toward Him, He is lifted up to praise. It's inevitable. When we navel gaze and we look at our circumstances and we say, woe is me, I miss my cucumbers, you are not going too long for praising God. But if you come to Him in that complaint, in that raw posture of your soul, then you will inevitably see Him. And your heart will be drawn to say such things and to praise Him genuinely. Fix your eyes on Him even if you are in the depths and He will lift up your head. There is almost no more exquisite worship that you can render to the Lord than when we say things like this, like 12 through 17, even while we are at the lowest points in our hearts. Is that not what was beneficial for Job? The Lord gave the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And don't you see the point? The only reason it makes sense at all for us to bring our complaint to the Lord and not to anyone else is that the Lord is the only one who can do such things as verses 12 through 17. Holy and awesome is His name. If anyone in your life is the recipient of your complaints more than the Lord, a major readjustment is needed. Because they can't do anything about it. They can't do verses 12 through 17. They can't dry up ever flowing streams. They can't crush the heads of Leviathan. God can. And that's why it makes a difference to bring our complaints, the longings of our soul, to Him. The reason we complain to others and not to the Lord is that our complaints are not filled with faith and thus they don't lead to worship. We just grumble. We have self-pity. Number two, we see, we've seen that lament is worship. We also see that lament is a root of faith. In lament, when we gaze upon the Lord with the complaints and agonizing of soul, we will find that our hearts are, or will be eventually, warmed. And there, even there, faith is made possible and grows. This is why, have you ever thought about this? This is why godly sorrow produces repentance. It's not because sadness is an essential mixture, but only when we are towards the Lord in our sorrow with faith is repentance even possible. You know I would love to dive into each of these statements. Each one of them would merit a song or sermon. At least a soliloquy. But I'll comment just on one. 
you crushed the heads of Leviathan. There's so much here to celebrate and rejoice, even or especially or only if we understand that this multi-headed creature in Hebrew poetry is a metaphor for evil itself or the evil one himself. Our hope in the Lord is not merely because one day he will put an end to all evil, but that it is already decreed and the victory is won. Leviathan, in principle, is already defeated and is being feasted upon because the seed of the woman has come and crushed it. Lament also stirs up longings for God. The stronger or more self-sufficient we feel or think we are, the less we will long for the Lord. As the psalmist considers the mighty works of God, he's, just not, re- he's not recounting these just to remember his theology. He wants God to do stuff like this again. First reason we saw lament brings us to look to the Lord. And when we see Him, we begin to remember who He is and what He has done and what He's capable of. The second reason is in lament that we want God to act. It's not just saying sad things or bringing the complaint. We're, we're actually petitioning God to do something about it. Only He can help us. And we have no other options. So this section, verses 12 through 17, has this effect. Lord, I know what you're capable of. I know the truth about you. I've seen your work. I have heard of your mighty deeds. So Lord, how about more of that? Can you rouse yourself and act this way again? More of that kind of action, Lord. We want to see it again. Revive us again, O Lord. We know you're capable. We've seen you do it. Come again. Of course, we know that He will always do what is best. But part of what is best, understand this, brothers and sisters, is for the Lord to act in response to our prayers. Fascinating. God knew what needed to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, but He waited until the outcry against the city came enough into His ears same principle at play, even now. The same God. Do we long for the Lord to work and act quite enough? Are we content to just say, well, whatever He does is best? I fear that that's why our prayers are so tentative. Because we're afraid that even if we were to ask, even if we were to plead, even if we were to stir up these longings, and laments that nothing would really change. We lack faith. So, what are some of the things we should ask for in lament? Verses 18 through 23, last section of the psalm. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people, meaning a foolish nation, reviles your name. 
Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes. The uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. The first thing that we're to ask for in lament is God's glory in our deliverance. I want you to see that connection all through these verses. This is a massive blessing to see this. It's not just God's glory out there in a theoretical sense. God has designed and ordained that His glory would be seen and manifest in the deliverance of His people. And it is right for us to ask for such things because of His glory. That connection is so precious and valuable for all of your prayers. Just imagine, it is right. It is good to ask. This is what is happening in the psalm. He is asking God to cease and desist from even His righteous discipline. Why was it right for Moses to hear what God was planning? God told him. And Moses said, no, please don't do that. For your name's sake. And for your glory in the deliverance of your people. Why should we ask for one outcome for us that results in our good rather than a different outcome? Who are we to know? The decrees of the Lord. And why is it right for us to appeal to the Lord for mercy even when we deserve nothing but wrath? And even in Christ, all we deserve is unending discipline. The reason it is right to ask and pray all that way is because God is more glorified in the deliverance of His people and in their blessing and in Him showing mercy to them than He is when they are oppressed, downtrodden, and in a pitiful state. There's so much more to say here, but that is, that is the crux of so many precious truths about prayer and our motivations to pray. Why is it right to be so audacious as we come to the throne room of God? Because His glory is at stake in how well His people fare. And in how much mercy He pours out on them. Connecting God's glory to what you're praying for is what it means to grow in the spiritual discipline of prayer across the board. The second thing we pray for in lament that we ask for is covenantal mercy. He cries to the Lord to remember His covenant. Go deeper into that connection. The reason it is more glorious for the Lord to deliver and pardon His people rather than cause them to be oppressed and opposed and brought low all the time is because He has promised in His covenant To do them good. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Do we believe that? That He has actually made such promises? 
when we read things like, He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. It is because He is operating in the context and contours of His covenant. We appeal to God to do good for us because He said He would bring it to pass someday. Praying for God to make good on all His promises and not to delay any longer is the epicenter of the best prayers you could pray. The third thing we ask for in lament, unavoidable, justice. There are two reasons we ask for justice. He's praying for the Lord to not forget this, to see their scoffing and to do something about it. Two reasons. Because, number one, the enacting of justice does glorify the Lord. And if you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear for the day of judgment. If you're in Christ, you're already on board the ark. The second reason is because when we pray for justice, For that prayer to be answered in full, it means the return of Christ. Because everything is pending. Everything is waiting conclusion. Everything is in a tentative holding pattern until He comes back. This theme of justice and God humbling the proud and exalting the humble are the themes at play in Mary's heart when she realizes the depth of the blessing of the Lord Jesus in her womb. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the thoughts of the proud in their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. There's this rejoicing and understand that in the coming of Jesus, the foundation is laid for God's justice. This is what we celebrate in the song, Joy to the World. It's more a song about the Lord's second coming He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He's coming to do this. It is His justice. And that sets us perfectly up for next week. Our longing and asking for all these things, for God's glory and our deliverance, for His covenantal mercy and for justice, can only come to conclusion and will only find their answer at the return of our Lord. In the meantime, we're at a loss and things are a mess. So lament that deep cry of the soul, how long, O Lord, will be a part of healthy spiritual life until He comes. It'll be a normal and needed part of the worship of God's people until that day. So yes, come soon, Lord Jesus. How long will we have to wait for you?
Father, forgive us for being tentative in our prayers, not coming to you with the anguish of soul, or for making our brothers and sisters feel like that that is wrong or sinful. Grant to us the right posture of heart to understand your heart, that you are a Father who is not disappointed or despising of us when we come to you like this. We are fragile and frail. And yet you love us and welcome us. And you don't send us away like we do our own children when they come to us pleading and begging and crying. You are kind in all your ways. Help us be kind like you. In Jesus' name, amen.